If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. I'll give you a few minutes to uh, get there. We're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians, and the theme of the series is Doctrine That Dances. This is not doctrine just for the sake of doctrine, but doctrine that moves us to feel and think and live differently. And so we're in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 through 23. And this is Paul. I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we turn our hearts to your word. And unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. Unless the Lord watches, we watch in vain. And unless the Lord speaks, and unless the Spirit empowers our hearing, then we're sitting here in vain. And so my prayer is that you would speak through your servant, that your Spirit which dwells within me would speak to your people, and that your Spirit that dwells in them would recognize the words of their living God and that they would be encouraged in the faith. I pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. There's a book called Struck, and it's written by a pastor by the name of Russ Ramsey. And uh, Russ has a severe heart condition, and uh, he writes, he's kind of journaling through that process of having to wrestle with, I might have this procedure and I may not live again. And so it's really self-reflective, but there's a chapter in the book where he talks about this hike that he went on, and, and I'm guessing that he's an avid hiker or was an avid hiker. I don't hike, so I don't quite know what this means, but I, I felt like it might be really helpful. So he had already hiked 20 miles for a day, and uh, he was hiking through the mountains, and there was this valley where he really wanted to get to and to get there and to sleep and to rest in the valley. And apparently the scenery was really beautiful. And he made a really bad decision. He had already hiked 20 miles for a day and uh, the valley was another 12 miles. And I don't know what hikers hike in an average day. That, that sounds like a lot, right? 33 miles in a day maybe? Well, he decided to, to push on. Well, he said, Hours after pushing on, he ran out of water and he ran out of food and he felt himself becoming dehydrated. And uh, he really panicked because most hikers who get lost 
it happens when there's starvation and there's dehydration, that something, it, it stops working correctly in their minds. And so there's panic. And so he worried, he worried if he would make it out alive. And so he finally came around a corner and he saw a bench and on the bench was trail magic. And kids, it's not real magic. So I don't want you to, want you to hear me saying that, but trail magic, uh, it's actually when more experienced hikers, they go before you and they drop certain gifts along the way because they know that unexperienced hikers will travel this part of the journey and it will, it will uh, confuse them, it will scare them that they will be unprepared, they will overestimate their ability and underestimate how dangerous the journey is. And so these trail magicians, they bring these backpacks full of stuff and they just, they'll drop a flare here, they'll drop a, a donut here, they'll drop uh, a, 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 a fruit bar over here, they'll drop water here all along the way. And he says, this is one of the biggest blessings he had because he was able to make it. Someone went before him, someone farther on the journey anticipated the danger that he would run into and they made a provision right there and it was all of grace and he calls it trail magic, right? The reason I think that's relevant for our passage is because Paul's farther along in his journey than these young Ephesian Christians. And it might be tempting when you read last week's passage to think that the Christian life is going to be great. It's going to be good. Paul, remember what Paul says? I do not cease giving thanks on account of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints. That when you read that first part of the prayer, it reads really confidently, right? It reads that they have it all together. And then in one sweeping, one sweeping burst, Paul stops stops praising, he starts petitioning. In other words, you, you see the contrast? I praise God for this. I praise God for this. But I'm asking him for this because I know there is coming a day when you will need, you will desperately need what I'm asking for. And so what I want to do this morning is sort of uh, unpack this passage under this lens, this bigger question what does a prisoner pray for? What does a prisoner petition God for? And, and what you see in this text is, is Paul is aware that those people in Ephesus will encounter seasons when grace is veiled. And that's kind of the first point. Paul anticipates the danger that they will encounter and it will be veiled grace. Now, why, why am I saying that, that, that Paul anticipates that they will encounter this season of veiled grace? Is because when you look at the way this prayer is structured, he says, I do not cease to praise God, but that same idea is I do not cease to be asking God for these things. So right there you get petition and then you get, you get praise and you get petition. And here's where we have to step back. We have to step behind what he's asking and ask the question, well, if he's asking for these things, then what does that mean? And here's what I mean. Think about the way uh, in, in, in James, for example. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God for it. So right there, it, it's really simple. So the petition, right? The petition for wisdom is rooted in what? A lack. I'm not wise enough. 
And so think about the way that you pray to think about some of the prayers in the Bible that were actively asking God for something. It might be protection and it might be forgiveness and it might be for wisdom and it might be for grace. But behind the prayer that we're asking, we're also admitting that in this moment, I don't have this thing. And so when I ask you for wisdom about this, I'm confessing in the moment that there is not enough wisdom in me to make this decision in a way that pleases you. And so when you look at all the petitions that Paul are that he's making, we have to step behind that and say, oh, I get it now. The reason he is asking for these things is because he knows that there is a season coming when they will lack these things. They might even be in that season right now where they lack these things. They might be in a season right now where they don't have these things. And if they if they have it now, I promise you a season is coming when they won't have these things. And therefore, Lord, I'm going to pray this prayer continually. I'm going to always be asking this of you for them. And I think Paul anticipates when grace will be veiled. Now, why am I using that language? veiled grace. Because in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, man, Paul just goes in about there's they've been received. They've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places through Jesus. They've been adopted into the household of God. They have an inheritance that is unshakable. They've been sealed by the spirit. This is all God's gracious giving to them. And this is who they are in Christ. This is who they really are. But there are times when they won't feel that. And so what he's actually praying is I pray that what I just told you is true in three through 14. I pray that when the moments come, when you don't feel like it's true, that you will remember that it is true. So grace is veiled. It's there. It doesn't move. It's, it's like the sun. When the sun is shining, it's over here and the earth might turn and it might be dark on your side of the world. But the sun is still shining. The sun is still shining, even though we might get an eclipse and it might get in the way of the sun. The sun is still shining. The sun is still shining when when we might have a, a, the, the sky filled with clouds and the sunlight does not penetrate and the warmth of the sun does not make it to the ground. But that does not mean the sun isn't shining. It's there. And I want to make the case to you that grace is always there, whether or not you feel it, whether or not you see it. The Bible says his posture towards you is always yes and amen in Christ. Always. But Paul anticipated darkness. Now, here's what I mean. I want to read a quote from J.I. Packer. And I, I really I'm, I'm reading um, Knowing God again. And it has just been good for my soul. But he has a quote from the chapter called These Inward Trials. And he says, some ministers do a great disservice to God's people. They speak of the heights of our salvation. They speak of the forgiveness of sins, the peace of conscience, the fellowship with God our Father, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, in this all in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, these, that language is all over Ephesians 3, 1, 3 through 14. They speak of the heights of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, the peace of conscience, the fellowship with God, our father. And through the indwelling of the spirit, we are able to overcome all sins that previously mastered us, that we will be led through all problems of guidance, that we will find fulfillment in all personal relationships and we will attain all of the godly desires of our hearts. These scriptural assurances are true, 
but it is possible to stress them and to so downplay them that we miss the rougher side of the Christian life. The daily discipline of the Lord, the endless war with Satan and sin, the periodic walks in darkness. And we give the impression that the normal Christian living is a perfect bed of roses, a state of affairs in which everything in the garden is lovely all the time and problems no longer exist. Or if they do, we only need to take them to the throne of grace and there they will melt away at once. This type of ministry allows itself to promise more than God has undertaken to perform in this world. You hear what he's saying? There is coming a day, Christian, when grace will be veiled. When all you are in Jesus, you won't experience that. There is coming a day, Christian, when you will go into the valley of the shadow of death, right? There is coming a day, Christian, when your sin will seem to master you. There is coming a day, Christian, when you will look in this world and you will want to throw up the towel and think that it's hopeless. There is coming a day, Christian, when you will feel unloved and you will not see the beauty of the cross. There is coming a day, right? How do you know when that time is here? Have you ever pleaded with the Lord for something and that something never comes? Have you ever looked out on the wickedness of the world and see it growing increasingly wicked? And you wonder, where is God? Have you never felt hopelessness? Have you never felt unloved when you're tired of being in a wedding and you want to be the bride, right? Have you ever felt like I have to do this thing or have this thing in order to be accepted? Have you ever felt like my reputation rests on if people like me and if I did something right and I cannot stand when they don't when they disagree with me? We're wrapping up our acceptance into what people think. And therefore, when they reject us, we feel unloved. Haven't you felt that before? Haven't you felt powerless to your own sin? Haven't you felt like I need to do a better job stewarding my money and you can't stay out of TJ Maxx? <laughs> right? Haven't you felt like I want to be more generous, but I really want to live this life and drive this kind of car, right? Haven't you felt like that, 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 that you have felt powerless where you have to go home and you have to have a drink and it has to medicate everything else that's going on around you and you say, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm going to stop and I'm going to get a handle on it, but then you don't get a handle on it? Like this is what I'm talking about, believers in Christ, we will go through those moments where we feel powerless, where we feel hopeless, where we feel unloved and I want to tell you, welcome to the club. If any person is really, really honest about their own life and their own faith journey, we're in it with you. We've not felt loved by God at times. We've not felt strong in the Lord's might at times. We've not felt as if we are God's treasured possession at times. And some of you might be in that right now.
This might be you're in one of those seasons right now in your life where grace is shining, but something's in the way. And that something can be your lot in life. It can be your own sin. It can be the actions of others against you. And something is in the way and it's lingering right there, right? Paul anticipates that every believer will have those moments when grace is veiled. That's the danger he sees. The second thing I want us to look at is the the dilemma he's in. He sees this and he's aware of this. And there is very little he can do. Have you been in those places before? Where you see things unfolding and you know where this is going and yet you don't have the power and the ability to get in there and to fix it on your own. Maybe you've been feeding your kids at the table and you forgot to strap them up into the high chair, right? And you just see it happening. You're in the kitchen cooking and you look and you see them kind of hanging and, and you see it and you just cannot get there fast enough to catch them and they fall right there, right there. You see it unfolding. It's like everything is in slow motion and you just see little baby girl tumble, right? You all have situations like that where you see things happening and there's a limit, right? Something is keeping you from getting there to do something about it. That's Paul. Now, how do we know? Because Paul is in prison. That three times in this verse, in this book, he writes from prison. I am a prisoner. I am a prisoner. And so Paul sees, he sees what's happening to his children. He sees what they're going to go through. He's farther along the journey and he knows that they will fall or be tempted to fall. And yet he cannot himself go to Ephesus. He cannot get on a boat and take a ship and make it to Ephesus to do something. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the tension and the anxiety that he feels. And I really think it's important to, 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 to look at it. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I've been stoned, I've been beaten with rods, I've been shipwrecked night and day adrift at sea in toil and hardships, many sleepless nights in hunger and in thirst without food in cold and exposure. And on top of all of this, there is the daily pressure on me and the anxiety for all the churches. And so put yourself in Paul's shoes. He tells us elsewhere that I love you like little children, that I want to be there with you, but the Lord will not let me. And here he is in prison writing, knowing that they will encounter these moments of veiled grace and he cannot get there and do something. It's a hard place to be. See, I think Paul's imprisonment him seeing what's coming and his uh, uh, inability to get there to do something about it, I think it's a window in who ultimately delivers God's people. This is Paul. He sowed, another man reaps, but who gave the increase? God. I worked, another man watered, and God caused the growth. So he who does this is nothing. He who does that is nothing. Only God gets the glory. This is a a firsthand lesson that he has to learn that I can't get there. And here's the thing. I think it's there for a reason. I think this is in here for a reason, because when you and I get in our moments of darkness and our moments when grace is veiled, don't you know that there are some things that you can't get yourself out of? 
See, when that when that comes. That we tend to say, let me go get a self-help book and let me just figure this out. Or let me call my friends and maybe I got friends like Joe, but that's not going to work out right either. Right. And here is what you see Paul doing. Look at who he turns to. It says he turns to the God and father of our Lord Jesus, the father of glory. <laughs> That's who he goes to. The father who delights, who delights to glorify his own name, who delights to be called upon, who delights to get glory himself for going there and strengthening and keeping the people. Paul goes to the one who masters and specializes in getting glory out of our weakness. And so I say that to you, beloved brothers and sisters, when grace is veiled, when all you are in Jesus, you can't quite see because something is clouding it. I just want to encourage you. Go to your father. I know me and I know when I'm in those moments, my knee jerk reaction is to call one of my best friends. My knee-jerk reaction is to talk through it with my wife. My knee-jerk reaction is to examine my heart. My knee-jerk reaction is to do everything but the most important thing. And that is to remember that I'm a son of the king. That in the same way that my son might walk in the street and run in the street and fall, that he runs straight to me, right? Like, I lose that sense that when I'm down and out, that I can go straight to my father in heaven who is right there waiting, saying, come on, right here. What do we need to do? That's what Paul does. That's the dilemma. He can't get there to assist, but he goes to the one who can. He opens his mouth. The third thing I want us to look at is the petition he makes. The danger he sees, the dilemma he's in, and the petition he makes. Now, before I get at what Paul does ask for, I want you to maybe survey your own heart right now. When was the last time grace was veiled? And how did you process that? Like, like what, was your, what was your first thing? What was the first thing you did, right? Was it to call a person? Was it to ask God for that thing, right? Like, I'm just, you know, you don't have to talk, but just how, how did you respond in that moment or in those moments when it's veiled? Like, what was your knee-jerk reaction? And here's what you see in the text. Look at what Paul asked him for. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, asking that God, the Father of our Lord, the, that, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, this is what I want him to give you right there, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom, that he may give you a revelation in the knowledge of himself, 
that he may open the eyes of your hearts, that they might be enlightened and that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. In other words, what Paul is asking God to give them is not to fix their situations. He's not asking God to fix my job and fix my boss and fix my spouse. What he's saying is, God, they need to see more of you. Like right here in this moment when grace is veiled, they they need to have a bigger vision of you and what you've done for them in Jesus. That's what I'm asking for. He says, Lord, open their eyes. Lord, give them wisdom, this, this knowledge that they need to know that will shape how they live. Open the eyes of their hearts so that they can see, pull back the scale, remove the veil. You've already made them wise unto salvation. Lord, give them more wisdom. You've already enlightened their eyes so to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Give them more glory. You've already done these things. Give them more and do this by the work of the Spirit. And so what he says is that what saints need most in difficult times is probably not what we ask for most of the time. We think that God manifests his love to us by giving us X. And God says, I manifest my love to you by giving you me. By giving you more of me. When life is hard, you need more of me. When life is hard, you need to see more of me and what I've done. You need to see the hope to which I've called you. Right. Look at verse 18. He says, Father, I want you to show them this, that they may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We talked about hope a few weeks ago, that hope is sort of this this this. I use the illustration from Tim Keller. Right. And he says that imagine a man is in a room and and you've been told that you're going to get a million dollars when you come out of this room. And now you have to go back in the room and do this mundane thing for a day because you know what's on the other side. That breaks in and gives you joy right here. That's what Paul is praying. Father, they are in the room right now of life and it is mundane and it is hard. But take their eyes off of what's around them. Let them see what you have promised to them in the end. That all things will work together for the good of those who love the Lord. That these light and momentary afflictions, they do not compare with the eternal weight of glory that will be revealed. Paul is praying, Lord, lift their eyes above what's going on around them and let them see your manifold wisdom. That's what they need. Hope. At one time you were without hope. You were without God, but not anymore. You belong to the Lord. He's called you where there is hope guaranteed at the finish line. The other part of verse 18 what, if, what does Paul want them to see? What does he ask them for? That they might know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It looks like he's talking about the riches of the inheritance that, it, that awaits us. But remember, in, in Ephesians, the end of chapter one, there was two ideas there. The one idea is we are God's treasure possession. We are his inheritance. And because of that, we get the inheritance. And what Paul is praising, asking God, Lord, let them know this. Let the hope part he's already talked about. Let them see what you have in store. 
but now I want them to see the glorious inheritance in you, right here, right now. Of all the things in the world, you, beloved Christian, are God's treasured possession. You are. You are. 19 through 20, I also want them to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand above the heavenly places. You see what Paul is saying? I want you to see the power of God that was on full uh-oh. That was on full display when he raised his son from the dead. Think about that image. Then none of you will live to see 200. That if you've been to a funeral, no one gets up and walks out of the casket. There is a finality to it that when you look at death, it looks stronger than anything else we've ever seen. We might put it off, but it is there waiting for us. And what Paul is saying, do you not see the power of God? That his son went into a grave in an empty tomb and three days later, the father says, son, get up. That the father glorified himself by raising Jesus up. And, and when you look at the, the vocabulary, it is absolutely beautiful. There's a spatial element to it where it looks like Jesus died and then he raised him up and raised him up and raised him up and raised him up and raised him up. It's this idea that God not only resurrected Jesus, but he resurrected Jesus and, and, and enthroned him. Uh, he's had a, a name that is above every name, that he has been raised above every power, earthly and demonic, that there is no no one under heaven stronger than him, no one on the earth stronger than him. And what Paul is saying, that same power that brought your Lord and Savior out of the dead, I want you to know it and I want you to see it and I want you to believe in it because it is real and it is, it is better than real. It is great. Now, why is it great? Because Paul says that same power that resurrected Jesus and enthroned him, it's at work in you. It's towards you, Paul says. If that is true, life is different. It's just different if I have the Holy Spirit at work in me helping me fight sin and helping me stay the course. It's just different. I'm not always the victim that we can say no to sin and we can pursue righteousness. That when you look at what Paul does right here, all the areas where that, that seems to attack us when grace is veiled. Can, is there hope? Can things get better? Am I loved and am I strong enough? Do you know that those are the very three things that Paul is praying God, let them know you've called them to hope. It will work out for their good and your glory, I promise you. Let them know that they're your treasured possession. If they never walk down the aisle, you love them better than any man could. If they never, ever get the things of this world, you are sufficient. The man or woman who has God plus stuff has no more than the man or woman who just has God. Right? Power, the same power that raised Jesus is in you. 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, you're not a weak little thing that Satan can do his little strings and your sin can do their beckoning and you have to re respond in obedience to it. That those ties were cut, says Paul. There is a power at work in every believer, says Paul. Or you can fight. You can fight. And the last thing I love about this is look at how it ends. It has given him the name that is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and a name that is above every name that is to be named. So now you got this, not just this spatial thing going up and down. He raised him and enthroned him. Now you got this, this time thing going left and right where he has a name that is above every name, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and then he gave him head over all things to the church. You catch that? He gave this one who is enthroned. He says, church, this is your gift. He is yours. He is your head. And you are joined to him. You are his body. And your head is standing victorious in heaven over sin and the grave. Your head has overcome the tomb. Your head has died for sins. Your head has won righteousness. And therefore, if you are attached to the head, it's given to all of you. I don't know if you watched the last uh, Olympic it wasn't the Olympics. It was, I forgot what it was, but Tori Bowie, she ended up winning, right? And it was, it was, it was one one hundredth of a second. And so her and the, it was the first time in history where the, uh, an American man and American female beat a Jamaican man and a Jamaican woman. So it was really a big deal. But if you go back and watch the race, she's running and, and at the end, right, she's right there at the end. And then she does this little lean, like she does this little lean and her head like crosses the finish line first and then the rest of her torso and she wins. And the whole idea is the head made it, the head crossed and the rest of the body gets the victory. And that's what Paul is saying. You and I have a head, a ruler who is in glory. And even though we're right here on the earth, we get the victory. We have it. He says, I want you to rest in this. When those moments of darkness come, rest. You are loved. Rest. You are powerful. Not in your own strength, but in the Lord. It's working out towards hope. It will get better. Do not believe the lie of the enemy. It will get better. Now, I'm going to close with this. There's one story in Scripture that I love. It's, it's probably one of my favorite psalms. And it's written by a man who's entered a season where grace was veiled. That is written by a man by the name of Asaph. And it's in Psalm 73. It was our call to worship. But in Psalm 73, Asaph starts, the Lord is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Look at verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, 
for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. This is a believer, a believer caught in the bond, caught in this place where grace is veiled. I'm looking at other people and what they have, and I'm looking at me, and in vain am I keeping your laws. Where are you, Where are you, Lord? Look at what they have. They don't have problems. They don't have trials. They have nothing going on. And look at what he says. My feet had almost slipped. But when I thought of how to understand it, it seemed wearisome in verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin, how they were destroyed in a moment, swept away by, ter by terrors. And look at what it says. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered. You felt that before? My soul was embittered. When I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. And then verse 23, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me in glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You get that? His feet had almost slipped. Life wasn't going like he wanted until he went into the sanctuary of the Lord. And it was there in the presence of the Lord that the Lord rolled back the veil and says, look, they're going to get 20 years of wealth and happiness and comfort. And it's over with. You're going to get 200 billion million. OK, right. And more than that, I'm with you and I'll never leave you. And the prayer does not say God gave them wealth. God gave him himself. And God was enough. God himself was enough to reorient him and to change him and to give him hope. And that's my prayer, that if that cloud of darkness is over you, that we won't feel like this is alarming, like I'm some anomaly Christian who doesn't go through hardship. No, we all do, right? that we will be quick to run to our Father in prayer and that our highest desire would be to get more of Him and that we will be rooted right there. And that is yours in Jesus. He has secured the access you have to the Father through His death and resurrection. You are a son that He says, come. You are a daughter that He says, come. And He will answer this prayer all the time Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would encourage your people. It is really good to ask for things and to ask for things that we desire. But you're greater than all things. That as a psalmist would say that, that though his heart may fail, that you are the strength of his heart and you are his portion forever. I pray that we would be people who desire that. Open our eyes, Lord. Let us see the wonderful things that you've done for us in Christ. And may they sustain us all the days of our lives, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.